Well, church, it's great to see you again, and thank you for gathering here this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this space, and for those of you that are gathered with us online, thanks for inviting the church into your living room or on your dining room table. Um, it's great to be able to open up God's Word, and if you're wondering, like, hey, weren't we in the, the series for the entire book of John? Like, why did we stop? Do we not? Do we have opinions about the last few chapters? The last few chapters are amazing, right? Uh, but we are taking a, a four-week uh, break here to do a series as we kind of get into the, the fall and as we get into just kind of some ministry aspects kind of kicking back off. We thought it would be helpful because it's, it's been a while even given the pandemic and everything where we've had an opportunity to sort of like revisit what it is that we seek to be about as a church and some of the practices and the things that we're calling people to engage in. And so even as you hear calls toward engaging in community and what does that look like or to serve, like we want to help sort of frame that. And so we are doing a four-week series, then we will pick back up with the Gospel of John here very, very shortly. But um, as you saw there in the video, this series is called Habits of Joy. And so I want to look at what are some practices, you could say rhythms, habits, liturgies, that the Lord in his kindness has given to us that actually help foster, help actually cultivate joy. So I think this is a fair statement to make, or I don't want to project all of my issues onto you, but... I'm assuming if we sat down for a conversation and we talked about the last 12 months, 18 months, something like that, right? if you even wanted to talk about it, my guess is we would all admit it's been a bit of a struggle to actually find joy at times. There's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of, you know, there's just a lot of tension in there. There's a lot of anxiety. There's all of that. And so what I want to do is we talk about some particular things with, with Crosspoint, how we seek to be about like following the Lord and growing as disciples. I want us to see that everything the Lord invites us into is not to rob us of joy, that the things that actually go together is when we make much of Jesus, when he is glorified, when he is worshiped, that's actually the space where we actually find joy, that those are not opposed to one another. In fact, those things go together. And so each week we're going to look at, and I'll explain this more in a moment, but we're going to look at these different habits or practices, things that we call you to. And so if you're somebody who's been a part of Crosspoint, this is language, hopefully that you've been hearing over the last couple of years, but I know it's looked different. And so we want to revisit that. If you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, to know, okay, this is how this church is seeking to grow as disciples and to make disciples and what we're, what we're called to. All right. So as we get into this, though, uh, this morning, all right, and to kind of set the context for this sort of big picture, and then we'll look at a particular rhythm or habit this morning. All right. I want to talk to you about captains. I want to talk about crying, and I want to talk about compasses. All right. Um, and so, if you were to imagine, I don't think any of us were alive in 1914, but if you were to imagine this scene. Outside of a courtroom, there are these two very large seasoned sailors. They are captains of ships, all right, and they have literally walked outside of a courtroom and they are tough and they are, you know, they, they've got a lot of like physical strength. And as they come out of the courtroom, you have these two particular captains and they shake hands and then they pull the other one in, and they put their head on the other's shoulder as they begin to sob uncontrollably. And there, as people are exiting the courtroom, they see these two burly men, and they are just locked arm in arm. And like I said, they're crying. They are not ashamed. I mean, they are just letting all of the emotion come out. And this picture is not one, certainly, that we would say, wow, that looks really joyful. How can I get in on that, right? Like, we would look at that and say, 
what has preceded this? Like, what has led to this level of grief? What has brought on the heartache? What has been so difficult that would take these two men who probably most of the time project strength and I've got it together and I've got this figured out and I don't need anybody's help and I'm a captain of a ship and I used to telling everybody else what to do. What would have brought them to a place of such brokenness? Now, it's this particular, these particular details preceded this, this picture that I just described. And so James K.A. Smith, in his really helpful book called You Are What You Love, talks about this picture this way. And he said, some of the, here's some of the details. If you were around at that time, the newspapers would have been filled with stories of a particular shipwreck. And it wouldn't have been too long after the Titanic had sunk and Leonardo had died and all of that, right? Like, and so you have, you have all of this very present in the culture, And he said this, in 1914, Congress convened a hearing to discern what happened in a nautical tragedy. In January of that year, in the thick fog off the Virginia coast, he writes, the steamship, the Monroe, was rammed by the merchant vessel, the Nantucket, and eventually sank. 41 sailors lost their lives in the frigid winter waters of the Atlantic. While it was Osman Berry, captain of the Nantucket, who was arraigned on charges... In the course of the trial, though, Captain Edward Johnson of the Monroe was grilled on the stand for over five hours. During cross-examination, it was learned, as the New York Times reported, that Captain Johnson, quote, navigated the Monroe with a steering compass that derived, uh, that deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass. He said the instrument was sufficiently true to run the ship and that it was the custom of masters in the, uh, in the coastwise trade to use such compasses. His steering compass had never been adjusted in the one year that he was master of the Monroe. The faulty compass that seemed adequate for navigation eventually proved otherwise, and this realization partly explains the heart-rending picture that we just talked about a moment ago. The sobs of these two burly men are a moving reminder of the tragic consequences of misorientation. To think about a device as simple as a compass and to just be two degrees off and the tragic consequences that that brings about. It is no wonder that these two strong men were clasped arm in arm and sobbing on each other's shoulders because of the loss of life and the devastation. And to know that had they simply calibrated the compass, had it actually pointed true north, had those things been rightly in place, maybe this could have been avoided. Now, The reason this applies to your life and my life is not because I anticipate that you're going sailing this week and you're going to have a compass, although maybe that would be helpful, but rather this speaks to something that is profoundly true about the human heart. What is going on in your heart right now and in my heart is a need for our heart to be recalibrated so that we might actually know what is true north, that we might actually know what it looks like to follow Jesus in this crazy world that we live in. So, Commenting on this, James K. Smith says this then. The reminder for us is this. If the heart is like a compass, then we need to regularly calibrate our hearts, tuning them to be directed to the creator, our magnetic north. It is crucial for us to recognize that our ultimate loves, our longings, desires, and cravings, they're actually learned. And because love is a habit, 
Our hearts are calibrated through imitating exemplars, being immersed in practices, practices, he says, that over time, they begin to index or kind of calibrate our hearts to a certain end. We learn to love then, not primarily by acquiring information about what we should love, but rather through practices that form the habits of how we love. It is not that information is bad, but you've seen a bobblehead before, right? You can picture that and the gigantic head and the tiny little body, right? Like we can be prone to sort of just like, let's take in more information, more information. And I'm somebody that likes information. I can like to study and read and do all of that. But the calling for us is not to pour in more information, but how do we figure out how to get our hearts rightly calibrated so we might actually know what we're called into, what we're invited into. So the invitation in this series, there's another way to think about habits of joy, is what has the Lord given to us that'll sort of calibrate or recalibrate our hearts? What will that be? And so at Crosspoint, something, some language that we introduce, I don't think we're talking about new things. We're talking about things that are very ancient, things that have been around for as long as the church has been around. But what language do we give to sort of talk about what our particular habits or practices that God in his kindness gives us. Now hear me on this. If you're viewing this series right away, now you're gonna start viewing it through a lens of okay, habits and practices, and this is what I have to do in order to get God to love me. We've already missed it. You, if you're in Christ, God can't love you any more than he does right now. But we don't always experience that love or that joy, and that's not because God has failed us, Oftentimes, that is because I get distracted. I have my heart just a degree, two degrees, three degrees, and suddenly there's this drift. And before I know it, I can find myself in a spot feeling very distant from the God who has not stopped loving me and pursuing me. And so God, in his kindness, has given us particular gifts. He's invited us into certain practices to say, listen, engage in these things. Make these a regular part of the rhythm or the habits of your life so that you might actually experience more of the love that he has for you, that you might actually experience joy. And so what we're going to do over these four weeks is talk about the language we give to this of pulpit, chair, table, and square, all right? And so that's my attempt at rhyming. Hopefully you can remember it. But here's the big idea. We're going to look at one of those each week. And by pulpit, what we simply mean is this. It's the church gathering together on a Sunday morning. All right, it's not just all about the pulpit. I don't even know what this weird table is we ordered on Amazon. It's not really a pulpit, but you get the idea. It's this, it's this picture, all right, that we should have in our mind of like the invitation. Like you're here this morning. I know you're like, well, I got up and I set my alarm and I made breakfast and I drove myself here. That is true at a surface level, but you're here this morning because God has called you here. That God is the initiator. And the church is this church, it's referred to as the ecclesia, which simply means we're the called out ones. Like there's a call that's gone out. We have been summoned. We have been brought here. You're not here by accident. Whether you're here in person or joining online, like you've been called, you've been summoned. And so we want to talk about, hey, what's the importance of what we do here? Why does this matter? And it's not to heap guilt. It's not to say, well, if you don't have perfect attendance, good luck getting into heaven. That is not it, all right? Maybe you grew up in that sort of environment. That is not it at all. But what if we embraced this call? 
to gather for the proclamation of God's word, for worship through song, for the participation in the sacrament, to even being able to serve one another on a Sunday morning. It's not the be-all, end-all of church, but we are starting with this because the other things that we're called to flow out of this, that there is something important that takes place here. So we want to talk about that. And in the weeks to come, we will talk about the chair and the table and square and unpack those. But for this morning, we want to look at what is this call? Why do we even gather? What is this call to actually celebrate to worship when we gather here on a Sunday morning? And so I want to invite you. We're going to be in one particular text this morning. We'll look at a couple of different things. Um, and in case you don't have the book of Haggai memorized, you can go to Haggai chapter 1, which is this very small little book. It's two chapters in the Old Testament. But if you don't have a Bible or you're not quite sure where it is, you can also go to cplife.church. All right, get your phone out. You will see as you scroll down a little spot you can click that just says sermon notes. And you click there, it'll take you to a page where you can select today's sermon notes. The text will be there. I want to go ahead and read this. This is an account, just so you know, of God's people who had been exiled. The Babylonians had come in and kind of ransacked their town. They'd killed off loved ones. They killed off family members, neighbors. They destroyed homes. They destroyed businesses. They destroyed livelihoods. And the most upsetting thing is they had destroyed the temple. But sometime later, God's people, there's a remnant that is invited back. And this remnant is allowed to come back and to begin sort of setting up their lives again, including a rebuilding of the temple. And where this story picks up is the group of people have come back. And there was this initial joy and zeal and enthusiasm. In fact, in record time, they got the foundation of the temple laid. And it has now sat for 16 years. For 16 years, this has been going on. So it's the ancient equivalent of that, right? Some of you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Um, started in 2001, will it ever finish? Right, so who knows? But anyway, um, if you're like, what is that? Just drive down I-4 at some point. All right, but we are gonna be in Haggai chapter one. Let me go ahead and read this and hear God's response to them through this prophet Haggai. What does he have to say? And then what the heck does this have to do with your life and my life living here thousands of years later? It says this, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, these people say, the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. And the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, well, is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. You have planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. Verse seven, the Lord of armies says, think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house, and I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your home, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Because my house still lies in ruins, while each of you is busy with his own house. 
So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills and the grain, the new wine, the fresh oil, whatever the ground, produ- ground yields, on man and animal and on all that your hands produce. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God. And the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, so the people feared the Lord. Verse 13, then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. And the Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they began to work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So here we are. We're on the 24th day. It started on the first day. This is their sermon series, right? And so on the 24th day, they're like, okay, we got to get after it. Now, what I want to do this morning is talk about this ancient account, this ancient historical account, and try and help us understand how this continues to play out, though the circumstances might look different, and they do, but how this continues to affect us as the church in our culture, in our moment, and what is the Lord inviting us into. And so I want to look at the conditions that we see here in this particular text, particularly the first six verses, and I want to look at what is, what is our call? How are we to respond? And lastly, look at the commitment that it's going to take to see this work come about. And so the conditions, as we, as we see here in these opening six verses, once you get sort of the context, all right, that things are in bad shape. And as we read through this, there's a couple things I hope that jump out at you. Numerous times it says the word of the Lord or this messenger, these words from God. And it's this way of making sure in no uncertain terms that we are not guided by our feelings or what we want to do or what we think is best or our opinions. Listen, you do not need my thoughts, my opinions, Jamie's hot take, literally probably on anything, right? What you and I need is the authoritative word of God. And so here we find in this chapter, for one, it's just this declaration, the word of the Lord, and then the way that God himself is described. God chooses lots of different names for himself, lots of descriptors, but I don't know if you caught this. Five different times it speaks of the Lord of armies. This is meant to make sure we don't lose sight of who is sovereign, who is ruling, who is reigning, who has all the authority to actually say, this is the way to live. It's not even just the Lord of an army. It's the Lord of armies. Like He is sovereign. So when we talk about God's call, this isn't a take it or leave it, like, "Eh, I don't know, like, that's his opinion, that's his take. Like, no, he's the God of the universe. There's no neutral territory here. And then we see in this context, it begins to talk about the house of the Lord. And it tells us, right? I mean, I gave you some of the details that for 16 years, all it was was a foundation. And they should have been about the work of pursuing God's purposes, God's design. What is the the temple? What is the house of the Lord? Well, it's the place where worship happens. It's the place where people would congregate and they would gather and they would begin to worship their God. 
When rightly understood, it was the great joy of God's people to ascend to the temple. We did a series called the Psalms of Ascent over this last 12 months or so. And in there, it's just like the songs. It was the soundtrack of the people that they would sing as they got to go to the temple. Like there was this joy, this enthusiasm about being with God's people, worshiping God. Like that's the call. That's ultimate. And every single person who's ever walked the face of the earth is a worshiper. The question becomes, are you a worshiper of King Jesus or ultimately of self? Like there really are just two camps. And Jesus is inviting us. And through this text, we're saying, what is to be the priority? And though some of the particulars do look different, are we committed to what happens on a Sunday morning? Do we value this time? Now, I realize, all right, and it's not lost on me, that even when we planned this and we were getting into it, we were at a spot even in the kind of where everything was health-wise. They were like, oh, it looks like we're, you know, we got rid of some mass protocols, different things, right? Like, and I realized that we we're kind of in a spot where some folks are going to choose to be back watching more online, engaging. Some are going to be in person. This is not meant to, to call that out. So please, please hear my heart in that pastorally. But can I put before you Pre-pandemic, if you can remember those days, there was a massive issue in the church that was part of Crosspoint, as part of the bigger church, of a lack of desire and even participation in this calling on a Sunday morning. There's probably all sorts of contributing factors to that. But that was something that was present before the pandemic, a sort of a take it or leave it. And Oftentimes, even a, oh no, this is my church and I'm very, very committed, but, but a lack of participation on Sunday. Now, I'm not saying that to heap guilt. I'm just saying that's just anyone who studies this from a sociological perspective would say, that's it. Like the committed people would say maybe one to two times a month that they'd be gathered with God's people. And what the pandemic has done is simply accelerated that, intensified that. And so if you're at home or you're not able to participate because of health reasons, there is no shame in that at all. What this is calling out, though, and I want to be very clear on this, is there is this invitation that when we actually gather, the Lord is doing something. We'll look at that more in a moment and what he's actually doing. But to actually not gather with God's people, like, so if you can picture, like, post-pandemic, all right, and it's just sort of a take it or leave it mindset towards the purposes of God, the things of God, gathering with, with the church. The Bible knows nothing of that. Sort of this mindset of like, well, I love Jesus and not the church. Well, what is the church? The body of Christ. So you can't say I love Jesus and hate his church. It just doesn't work. And maybe the language wouldn't be, well, I hate the church, but I'm sort of indifferent or whatever. The call here is what does it look like to be about God's purposes? And again, this is not to rob us of joy, but it's rather so that we would actually experience joy. And so this question then, how have you, how have I neglected the house of the Lord? And thankfully, we don't have to go very far to get an answer to, to some of that. We'll look at here in a moment of what actually can get in the way. Now, we might again be thinking, okay, well, that's the temple, but how does that apply today? Well, be reminded again of these words in Ephesians chapter 2. We now, as the church, we're the temple, and God is building something. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone. 
In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. So I don't know what your mindset was, like driving here this morning or turning on the live stream or whatever, but just know this. God's purpose is that he's building something and that we are this this new and living temple. We get to be about this work of rebuilding. And there's a joy to be found in that. And I love the way and the good reminder that Kent Hughes says this. He says, it is true that a person does not have to go to church to be a Christian. He does not also have to go home to be married either. But in both cases, if he does not, he will have a poor, very poor relationship. So as we, we're like, oh yeah, that whole logic kind of makes sense, right? Again, that doesn't mean you're never away from home if you're married or that you never have time apart from your spouse. But if the pattern is like, yeah, you know, we hang out once a month, okay, well, that's probably not good, Right? So what would it look like to recapture God's vision for this invitation to come and be part of like what he is actually building? And so the problem is, he says, is that you guys are saying, as he's addressing the people back then, well, the time has not come. He's like, okay. And I love it because I'm pretty sure there's some sarcasm here, which apparently God embraces. Well, is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses? Well, the house of the Lord lies in ruins. So he calls out paneled houses. And if right now, if you're like, uh-oh, I just posted on Instagram this little house project we were doing. Am I, do I need to repent? I got to take that down real quick. That is not it. Do the house project. Do the yard project. Do, do that. Listen, the point in the language here with paneled houses is you are pursuing a comfortable life. That's what it's calling out. If your ultimate objective is about you and your comfort and you're like, hey, I don't know if I need to gather with God's people. Forgetting that the church actually needs you, forgetting that you bring particular gifts, forgetting that God will minister through you to other people, and the other people will minister to you, like all of those things, and it's just comfort. That is one of the things that this pandemic has accelerated, right? Because we did for a time. We all had to huddle up, and we had to stay home in our paneled houses, right? But it's not meant to stay that way forever, And that has accelerated. We have been become, we're a selfish people on our own. It has accelerated that, intensified that. And God is wanting to free us from that. And one of the ways he does that is he brings us to a particular place. Not that this is the be all end all of church, but reminds us, oh, there's more going on than just my little comfortable life. Oh, there's these other people. And how can I pray for them and minister to them? And how can they pray for me? And how can we be joined together? And so paneled house is about just the pursuit of comfort. Is that what is driving you? And then just very practically to ask, well, how's that working? Did, did you notice the descriptors beginning in verse six? I mean, this sounds pretty bleak. There's no joy to be found here. Hey, I planted a lot and I harvested little. And I went to the buffet, but it didn't fill me up. And I grabbed something to drink, which talking about alcohol, because then it says, I, I drank that, but it didn't make me happy. It's like, this doesn't even work. What is this? Oh, duels? What's going on here? Right? Like that sort of thing. And then, right, it's like, and you, you put on clothes, but you never get warm. You got the chills. And you're just like, add another blanket, add another sweatshirt, and you can't get comfortable. Like, there's no joy to be found. And you work your job, and you get your paycheck, and then you go and you, you cash it, and you lose your wallet or you lose your purse, and it's gone. And so it's causing us to just stop and just say, at the most basic level, you pursuing comfort, me pursuing comfort, and I'm telling you, I need to preach this to myself. Do not hear this as, well, you guys need to do this. No, 
The driving factor of so much of my life is what is Jamie's comfort. And we need other people to call us out in love to say, the Lord has more for you. So how is that even working? Are you, would you say, I've got, I got joy overflowing, man. I got extra, I got, I got joy, like I can spare some. You need a little bit more? Or if you're like, no, it's hard, it's a grind, there's difficulty. It's worth asking the question, what have we been pursuing? And I love the way the theologian, this is a little wordy, but Jonathan Edwards talks about this. He's like, hey, you can pursue happiness one of two ways. You can either entrust that to yourself or you can entrust it to God. The pursuit of this joy and happiness, God's not looking at that thinking, oh, that's terrible. He's just like, you're going about it all the wrong way. So hear what Edward says. He says this, if you are selfish and make yourself and your own private interests your idol, God will leave you to yourself and let you promote your own interests as well as you can. That's what's going on in Haggai chapter one. But if you do not selfishly seek your own, but do seek the things that are Jesus Christ and the things of your fellow human beings, then God will make your interest and happiness his own charge. And he is infinitely more able to provide for and promote it than you are. If we stop right there, that struck me this week. My pursuit of happiness, I mean, if I just stop and think about it, okay, God can tell me, hey, I'll, you can either entrust that to me, I've got that, which doesn't mean every circumstance can go the way that we want it. We're talking about a joy that's not dependent on circumstances, or I can try and do it my own. Why in the world would I ever trust myself? He continues, the resources of the universe move at his bidding. And he can easily command them all to subserve your welfare. So that not to seek your own in the selfish sense is the best way of seeking your own in a better sense. It is the directest course you can take to secure your highest happiness. And at that point, Edwards walks off the stage and drops the mic, right? Like that sort of picture. I'm like, oh my goodness, like why in the world would I entrust it to myself or to anybody else or to some sort of circumstance or a paneled house and a life of comfort? It's not going to bring joy. But if we pursue God's purposes, his kingdom, seek first the kingdom, what if we actually believed him and trusted him that that's the best possible way to live? And it includes this habit this rhythm, this practice of gathering to be part of this kind of renewal ceremony where we are reminded again and again, I am not my own. I've been bought with the blood of Christ. I'm a son, I'm a daughter of the king. All week long, I've been bombarded with a narrative that says I've got to prove, I've got to measure up, I've got to build my resume. And we get to walk in to a place that reminds us that the resume you now have is the spotless righteousness of Jesus. That's your new identity. And in light of that, we get to praise God together and we get to participate in the sacrament together and we get to have the word of God open to us, which is the authoritative word of God. And actually here, we're like, well, I haven't heard from God in a while. It's because you haven't opened your Bible in a while because he's speaking to us. What joy that is. And so to talk, I realize it could probably feel even self-serving. Oh, of course the pastor's going to get up there and say you should come to church more, right? But what if we realize God has designed it in such a way that your joy is dependent on some of these habits and practices? 
the pursuit of the things that ultimately matter. And so as we get into 7 to 12 then, just it's been talked about already, and he you know, kind of doubles down on some of the things that you expected much, but then it amounted to little. But there is this call then to rebuild. And so for just a moment, let's ask, okay, why rebuild? Why are they called to rebuild the temple? And why are we called to be about this work of rebuilding the church? And certainly, I hope you're picking up on the fact that where that was physical for them, we're talking about this spiritual rebuilding. It's not a building campaign that we're talking about here. We're just talking about like being built together as a church and then what might that actually look like. And so if we think about this, the why, why do we actually gather? First and foremost, it's for celebration. It's for worship of God, right? Build the house and I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. Like that's the calling. And I spend so much time and energy making good gifts, ultimate things, thinking in that I'll actually find satisfaction. And it doesn't work. And so the calling here is to actually, first and foremost, seek God. Worship of God. The name, the renown of Jesus. Does that drive us? What would it look like in this coming year, regardless of what's going on pandemic-wise, regardless of what's going on politically, regardless of any of the, the things that have been like major dividing points over this last year, regardless of any of that, what would it look like if we as a group of people were like, we're about worship of God. That's what I want to get after. I want to worship him in song. I want to worship him through prayer. And yes, it's more than what happens on a Sunday morning, but it's not less than that. Again, Jamie Smith uh, talks about this, and as we think about the not only celebration, but I put before you, it's also formation. You and I are being formed. Not when you leave here and think about, okay, maybe I'll go apply something, but like right here in the moment. There's a living temple that's being built as we have gathered here this morning. And God's spirit is present here with us collectively and individually, and he's doing this work. It's this ancient practice. We are people, we get caught up, right, in the hype and the novel and the new and what's the latest and greatest. And what if what we've been missing out on is this old, seemingly unremarkable thing that's an invitation to come and to worship? What if that's the thing that actually forms us and shapes us? And so in his book, You Are What You Love, he says this, I don't have a radical thesis to offer about discipleship, you won't find in this book some new program or novel formula, some previously unknown secret revealed by a guru who finally solves the problem of discipleship, like the spiritual equivalent of those weight loss pills you see advertised on television, if only. To the contrary, my argument is the very opposite of novel. It's ancient. The church's worship is the heart of discipleship. He continues, yes, Christian formation is a life-encompassing Monday through Saturday, week in and week out project, but it radiates from and is nourished by the worship life of the congregation gathered around word and table. There is no sanctification without the church, not because some building holds a superstitious magic, but rather because the church is the very body of Christ, animated by the Spirit of God and composed of spiritual practices." This ancient thing that we're part of, like right here, right now, is doing a work. 
And part of cultivating joy and recalibrating our hearts for the purposes of God is we need one another. And to be able to come in here, and again, not in a legalistic sense. You're not going to get a star on some sort of sticker chart if you have perfect attendance. That's not where we're going. But know this. When I get out of certain habits and rhythms and practices, there is a direct correlation to the lack of real joy that I experience. Another book that I, I really like is by author Tish Harrison Warren in the Liturgies of the Ordinary. And she describes it this way. She's talking in this chapter on the importance of gathering, all right? And you think about meals. Like you could probably, if I sat down with you and said, hey, tell me about like one of the most epic meals, you probably could come up with something, right? Like, hey, you were at this dinner party or a reception or you just got to go to some amazing restaurant and it's even better because somebody else footed the bill. Like whatever it happened to be, right? Like you just got this multi-course and all of that. And that is amazing. And yet, that's not the norm, right? What'd you have for lunch two weeks ago on Tuesday? Anyone remember? I have no idea what I had. I, I don't even know if I remember what I had yesterday. But we do know this, even if it was as simple as peanut butter and jelly or leftovers or whatever it happened to be, that thing, it nourished you, it sustained you, it fed you, it was unremarkable. You don't even remember what it was, and that's not the point. I hope there are times you come on a Sunday morning and you're just like, like, oh my gosh, it was amazing, and God did these amazing things. But more often than not, guess what? Welcome to the unremarkable. Can we just get that through our heads, right? I don't want to hype this up, like, come here, it's going to be amazing. Just every week, some new thing, can you top? No, no. The call is the ancient. The call is to submit to this. The call is not in this self-focused way of just like elevating our feelings in this experience, but rather, what would it look like to submit to these practices and say, Lord, form me, to surrender to that, knowing that he's the creator and he knows best. What if we stop viewing a Sunday morning like, oh, I don't know, do I want to get up? Do I want to make the effort? Like, it might not be that amazing. It might not be anything to write home about. It might be pretty unremarkable. Yes, get in the car. Like, come on, that's what we should be about because it's going to nourish us and it's going to sustain us. And so as we think about that, that's why then, real quickly, okay, what, and we see it here, that the Lord says, think carefully about your ways, go up into the hills, bring down lumber and build the house. And so really, as we think about the what, there's, there's a call to reflect and there's a call to repent. And so just reflect and it's doing the hard work of asking, how have I pursued comfort? How have I made it all about me? How have I lost sight of the glory of God? I'm not saying we enjoy having those sort of moments of introspection. But without them, we won't actually experience the joy that God has for us. He says, think carefully. I mean, that, that language there, like, don't skip over it. Sit down. Have a conversation about it. And then to repent means to move in a new direction. Go. Go be about the Lord's work. And then what I love, and I find this incredibly encouraging, it continues, it says, the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God. And yeah, the obedience is encouraging, but I find particular encouragement, it's a remnant. As we read through the Bible, you see how God works? It's always a small group. It's, it's always people that don't have it together. Do you think the disciples had amazing resumes? Do you think they were first-round draft picks? Like, nobody wanted them. 
You go and read the story of Gideon, and God's like, all right, I'm gonna use you to destroy this, this opposing army. And so Gideon shows up with thousands of men. He's like, nope, I'm gonna whittle it down. Nope, I'm gonna whittle it down some more. Gideon's like, dude, what are you doing? God's like, I'm God, just pay attention. And secures victory, why? Not to showcase how amazing Gideon is, but to showcase the Lord's strength. You see this over and over and over again. Unremarkable people gathering in unremarkable ways, and the God begins to bring joy. So we'll close with this. In 13 to 15, then, we see the people respond, right? The Lord's message is delivered. It says that they go, the spirit was roused. But I want us to close with this. Yes, their commitment. Yes, that repentance. That all matters. But it's fueled by this line in verse 13. Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. And what was the Lord's message? What was the thing that was spoken before the spirit was roused? He says, I am with you. I am with you, declares the Lord. And so God is present among us in this living temple. God was with his people thousands of years ago there. God showed up in flesh and blood in Jesus. That God is with us. That God moved into the neighborhood. And Jesus' zeal for the house of the Lord was such that it took him all the way to a cross to pay for my sin of indifference, my selfish pursuits of paneling my own house, making it about me, and he did the same for you. That's what took place there on the cross. And Jesus was with you enough to go and do that. And as the writer, the book of Hebrews would say this, this is what we need to focus on. If we're going to cultivate joy, these habits, it all flows out of this. Let us run with endurance. So there's this participation that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And here's the line. It's not for you to go and create and manifest or manufacture some joy. The joy belongs to Jesus, and he's inviting you to enjoy some of his joy. He's the source of it all. And for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God in the place of all authority. He conquered Satan, sin, and death. And so the joy that lay before him was the joy of a perfect obedience of obeying the Father and doing his will. And it was also the joy of securing your spot around the table and my spot and of bringing you into the family. It was the joy that was set before him that you were gonna have his righteousness. It was the joy that was set before him that he was gonna build this church and the gates of hell would not prevail against her. That's what we're invited into. And so when we come and we gather and it seems sort of unremarkable, just know this, Jesus is building his church. The enemy is frightened. The enemy is on his heels. We're not sitting back as the, the church cowering together. No, it's on the move. It's, on, it's the offensive. It's breaking down the gates of hell that will not withstand this work that the Lord is doing. And so our call is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's worship him. Let's celebrate him. And let's thank him when we gather on Sundays. And when we're not able to gather, may it create in us a longing, though, to be with God's people, to once again be reminded of the author and perfecter of our faith, and to be celebrating together his willingness to go to the cross for you, for that joy. And now he's dispensing it to you. And we get a taste of it right now. As a church, I want to pray for us.
And that tells us what we're going to do, as you might have even picked up on, we're changing up a couple of things, just even just some of our service order a bit. But let me pray, and then I'll tell you how we're going to continue to respond in this service. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your, your kindness and your grace toward us. Thank you for giving us your word. And Jesus, we thank you that you are at the right hand of the Father, and you're ruling and you're reigning. You're the Lord of armies. And I pray, God, that you would help us to listen, to heed your word, to understand that you are the one that can bring about joy. Help us to trust you. And when we doubt your kindness and your goodness, God, would we quickly call to mind to the power of the Spirit, Jesus on the cross, stripped naked, beaten, crucified, separated from the Father, so that we might actually experience the joy of salvation. And so God, would you continue to cultivate in us a deep sense of joy, help us to have the right perspective on these practices or these habits. God, I pray that it wouldn't feel burdensome, but rather it would feel like it's just a delight that we get to, we get the privilege of gathering. And God, as we do, I pray that you would get your glory, that we as your people would experience that deep and abiding joy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.